Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 43, 1 Samuel chapters 28 and 29. War is coming. The Philistines have once again determined to establish a higher state of dominance over Israel. And they undoubtedly hoped to convince Saul to accept vassal status over destruction because empire building wasn't their aim. The king of Gath summoned David in order to assure himself that David would fight alongside of him as an ally against David's own former homeland, Israel, against David's former king, Saul. The answer that David gave to Achish's inquiry on this matter would make any politician green with envy as the words that he spoke could be taken to mean whatever the hearer wanted them to mean. To the Philistine king, David's response sounded like a sincere loyalty oath. In fact, he was so moved by David's words that he appointed David to be his lifetime bodyguard. Now this was by no means a menial position. This appointment put David in a similar close inner circle with Achish just as he once enjoyed as part of King Saul's royal court. Well now that the Philistines and David's stage is set, the narrator of Samuel 28 moves us to the other side of the fence And King Saul's situation is addressed. And the situation that we covered in depth last week is that he has fallen into dark despair and utter panic. This darkness he felt was no ordinary darkness. It was a choshech kind of darkness. Choshech, the actual word by the way isn't present in this passage, is a Hebrew word that speaks of a spiritual darkness. It's a state of being whereby God's enlightenment isn't present. It is the absence of God that Saul was feeling. And this time, he was able to identify it as such, and he wanted a remedy for it. Well, wars in all ages had a spiritual element to them. Especially so the farther back we go into history. In David's day, what was occurring among human warriors on earth was sought to be just a reflection of what of a conflict going on among the gods up in the heavenlies. Thus, before engaging in battle, the earthly participants would approach their gods for wisdom and for strength and even for battle tactics. Sometimes it was to learn of the outcome before it happened. Now the Hebrew mindset was no different. And so when King Saul tried to coax the God who had abandoned him, Jehovah, to communicate with him regarding the coming war, every means he tried was met with silence not via dreams and visions or even through the use of the Urim and Tumim stones in the hands of the high priest was so much as a a yud or a jot 
of divine information revealed to the king. This put Saul not only at a distinct military advantage, but it also meant that he was on his own. This unnerved him to his core. Only one avenue remained for the king of Israel to try and get God's attention. And that was through his prophet. But his prophet, Samuel, was dead. He was buried. So that option was also cut off. Unless Saul could speak to Samuel's departed spirit. The problem is that if that were even possible, it was completely against Torah law to inquire of the spirits of the dead. But the terror-stricken anti-king had long ago stopped paying any but lip service to God's commandments. His immediate personal needs, his fears, overrode any sense of righteous behavior or proper reverence for God. Let's reread a portion of 1 Samuel chapter 28 where Saul's dilemma plays out. Uh, We're going to start reading at verse 7, which is on page 330 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel 28, starting at verse 7, page 330 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then Shaul said to his servants, Try to find a woman who tells the future by communicating with the dead. I want to go and consult with her. And his servants answered, answered him, Yes, there is a woman in Andor who tells the future by communicating with the dead. So Shaul disguised himself by wearing different clothes, and he went with two men, came to the woman by night, and said, Tell me the future, please. Bring up from the dead the person I named to you. And the woman answered, Now here, you know what Saul did and how he expelled from the land those who tell the future by communicating with the dead or with a demonic spirit. Why are you trying to entrap me, causing my own death? But Shaul swore to her by Adonai, As Adonai lives, you'll not be punished for doing this. And then the woman said, Whom should I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Shemuel. Samuel for me. And when the woman saw Shmuel, she let out a shriek. And then the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You yourself are Saul. And the king replied, Don't be afraid. Just tell me what you see. And the woman said to Saul, I see a, I see a godlike being coming up out of the earth. And he asked her, What does he look like? She said, An old man is coming up. He's wearing a cloak. Saul realized it was Samuel, so he bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Shmuel asked Saul, Why have you disturbed me and brought me up? Shaul answered, I'm very upset, because the Philistines are making war against me, and God has left me. He doesn't answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. This is why I've called you, so that you can tell me what to do. And Samuel said, why ask me if God has left you and become your enemy? Adonai has done for himself what he foretold through me. Adonai has torn the kingdom out of your hands. He's given it to your fellow countryman David. Because you didn't obey what Adonai said and execute his furious anger towards Amalek. 
That's why Adonai is doing this to you today. Adonai is giving Israel as well as yourself over into the power of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Adonai will hand over Israel's army to the power of the Philistines. Well, Saul immediately fell full length on the ground and became terribly frightened because of what Samuel had said. He had no strength left in him. He had eaten nothing all that day and night. The woman approached Saul, saw that he was panic-stricken and said to him, Here, your servant listened to what you said. I put my life in my hands and did what you requested me to do. Now, therefore, please... Listen to what your servant says. Let me put a little food in front of you, then eat, so that you'll have some strength when you go your way. But he refused. He said, I won't eat. Then his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded what they said. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed, and the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She hurried to slaughter it. Then she took flour, kneaded it, baked matzah with it, She served it to Saul and his servants and they ate and afterwards they got up and they went away that night. A necromancer. A Baal Ob. Baal Ob. Who lived not far from Mount Gilboa in uh, Eindor. Reluctantly welcomed a small group of men into her home after dark. Now it had to be obvious to her that these were government officials. And so when they inquired if she would be willing to bring up the spirit of a certain dead person for a seance, she balked. At first she didn't recognize the king, but because he was so distinctively tall in stature and could not have behaved with such aristocratic bearing, no amount of tattered peasant clothing was going to disguise his royal status. Thus the woman condescended and she quoted to the three men the king's own decree that no divining or necromancing was to occur in Israel or the perpetrator would surely lose their life as a penalty and far be it from her to disobey the law of the king. After assuring the witch of Endor that he would not place any guilt on her for what she was about to do at his request, Saul says he wants Samuel's spirit brought up from Sheol so that he might get some vital information from him. Now, interestingly, the witch apparently no sooner heard the king's request than an apparition of the great deceased prophet Samuel appeared. She shrieked in horror at his sight. He was wearing a meal, a cloak that is more or less the uniform of a prophet. Therefore, she knew instantly that it was indeed Samuel, which confirmed her suspicion that the man who asked for him was Saul, since kings and their prophets were generally paired up. Now, notice that whatever it was that appeared seems to have only been seen by the witch. Although virtually any painting or illustration of this event depicts Samuel as visible to all present, that wasn't the case. It's obvious that the Belat Ob was being swept along into something that she had no control over. 
by a power she didn't understand. There is no indication that she spoke special words, burned incense, performed any kind of occult ritual. Saul spoke the words that he wanted Samuel and suddenly there he was. The witch, who had conjured up dead spirits countless times, wasn't expecting what she was encountering, to say the least. No doubt this was the Lord who was manipulating this frightening event for his own purposes. Well, Saul told the woman to calm down, asked what it was she was seeing, and she responded that it was God's coming up from the underworld. God's? As in divine beings? See, the Hebrew word she uttered was Elohim. And while Elohim is a title the Bible uses at times to refer to Yehovah at all other times, it means gods, little g, gods. On the other hand, Elohim was also a common term used by pagans that referred to spirits that resided in the underworld. Although the witch in our story apparently was a Hebrew, her profession means she had adopted pagan ways, and thus she thought and behaved as a pagan. Now, by no means was she inferring by her reference to gods that something holy or on par with Jehovah had appeared, but for certain, the spirit of a dead person who carried authority was now appearing before her. The king, seeing nothing, bowed low to show humility to Samuel. But the apparition wasn't pleased to have been awakened from his resting place, nor was he impressed that the king of Israel lay sprawled before him in submission. Why? asked the spirit. Have you disturbed me and brought me up? This was hardly the answer of a genie whose main concern was to grant his master's wish. Rather, this was a grumpy dead person (laughs) who demanded to know what the meaning was of this inconvenience. Shaul responds that he was very upset because the Philistines were about to attack him and almost naively the king tells Samuel that he's tried to get Jehovah to speak with him but he hasn't had any luck. So he's taken this drastic course of action so that Samuel can tell him what to do about the upcoming war with the Philistines and what the outcome's going to be. I mean, can't you almost see Samuel rolling his eyes in disgust at Saul's expectation? Why ask me, says Samuel, since the Lord has not only abandoned you, he's even your enemy now. I mean, all that's happened is that what God said he'd do, he did. He's taken the kingdom away from Saul, he's turned it over to David, and Samuel reminds the anti-king that the reason 
for God's furious anger is because Saul refused to be obedient. And especially so as concerned Saul's ambivalence towards the Amalekites whom Jehovah had ordered eradicated. Let me be clear. The verb tenses regarding what Samuel is saying to King Shaul have a lot to do with Saul's trauma as much as the content of the degree itself. All the verbs present in this passage are of the complete or perfect tense. Meaning, Samuel is saying that God has already done these things. Nothing can be undone. The outcome's already sealed because it's happened in the past from a heavenly perspective. All that remains now is for it to be fulfilled on earth. And what is to happen is that Saul is going to be defeated by the Philistines. The kingdom of Israel is going to be put under the power of the Philistines. And Saul and all of his sons are going to die in battle at the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow, the death sentence has been handed down. It's going to be carried out in a matter of hours. But here's the thing. You see, none of this was really a surprise to Saul. His own royal advisors had been telling him for years that God had left him. And that spirits of evil were tormenting him and directing him. Samuel, the very man who ordained Saul as king of Israel, walked away from him. He told Saul that this was because God had permanently left the king. Now, even though Saul paid no attention to the Torah and the curses, he knew the laws well. He knew the, viola- uh, the penalties for violation. Saul somehow thought that he could defeat God's will. But deep inside, he knew there'd be a day of reckoning. Well, that day has arrived. There's no postponing it. Now, I hope your mind is swirling as you think about this as much as mine was when I was preparing this lesson. Because here we have an excellent illustration of what is so irrationally common among mankind. We know the truth. We know the inevitable outcome of our disobedience. But we go blindly forward as though the day of judgment simply is never going to happen. It's never going to arrive. If we put it out of our minds and just continue doing what we know is unwise or sinful, maybe God will just kind of forget about it and judgment will bypass us. I'd like to take a few moments to share with you something directly from my heart. I am fascinated with those TV programs about prisons and about the poor tormented souls who occupy them. Primarily because, on the one hand, there is seldom any repentance or remorse for what they had done 
outside of self-pity for losing their freedom. They, it just didn't matter what they'd done to wind up in jail. But on the other hand, they hate being in prison. And they acknowledged that they knew at the time of what they were doing that it was inescapable that the crimes was going to lead them to prison. They knew it. They did those things knowing it was wrong, knowing how terribly it would affect some innocent person, and at some level, they enjoyed doing what they did. But at the same moment, they knew that they would eventually be brought to justice and pay a terrible price. But no one and nothing could deter them. Why do they do that? Why have we done things like that? Let me frame that question in another way that's maybe a little closer to home. Why do we as God's redeemed disobey Him? Go our own way. Knowing that in some form or another, there is going to be consequences. It may be immediate. Or it may be delayed consequences. The consequences may be in the form of disasters in our lives. Or the result of the civil justice system. Or it may be in the form of eternal divine justice. It may be all of the above. Why does Satan do what he does knowing that the destructive outcome of his willful rebellion was sealed the moment he determined to become God's chief adversary. You know, you would think that any rational, sane person or powerful supernatural being upon understanding this no-win predicament would throw themselves upon God's offer of mercy. But no, it just doesn't happen that way, except for relatively few. And while we've all heard wonderful stories about deathbed conversions, I can tell you that no pastor or priest or rabbi who has lived to a ripe old age would advise anyone to count on it. It's a rare thing. And often, the words we hear on the deathbed are just last moment grasping at straws. And they carry no weight. We are warned in both testaments that without sincere repentance and turning from our wicked ways, it's more likely than not that at some point, Jehovah will determine we've crossed a divine line in the sand and His offer of mercy has been withdrawn, never to be offered again. Just as for King Saul and for Satan, it is possible for God to abandon us and condemn us if we have stepped over that line and then firmly entrenched ourselves there. Who the Lord relegates to the likes of Saul and Satan and who he'll be patient with until death, we have no insight into. We can speculate, but we cannot know. 
I've tried to display both David and Saul as honestly and without prejudice as they are portrayed in the scriptures. So that we can see that in most ways, they weren't all that different from one another. And yet, in the single most important way, they were polar opposites. Now both of them sinned. Both disobeyed God and His holy laws. Both could be selfish and rash and ruthless. Both would deceive others to get what they wanted or to protect themselves. What apparently separated them was that David determined to stick to God even when he was doing wrong and to cooperate with God and to run back to Him when he was confronted with his sin. While Saul chose to embrace his wrong, to challenge God and to directly fight against Him if need be, regardless who told him of his trespasses. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11. Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. Some of you used to do these things, but you've cleansed yourselves. You have been set apart for God. You have come to be counted righteous through the power of the Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah, and the Spirit of our God. David was willing to admit his wrongs before the Lord, repent, and change. Saul only set his jaw all the firmer, became all the more defiant. Nobody, nobody, including God, rebukes the king of Israel. 1 Samuel 28.19 has Samuel telling Saul that tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, meaning in the underworld of the dead. The thing to understand is that Samuel didn't mean this in the sense that by the end of the day tomorrow, Saul and his sons would be in the same eternal state as Samuel. Rather, this is referring to the concept of Sheol, the grave, the place that all humans, wicked or righteous, will suffer. And then from there, men will be judged. Hebrews 9.27 And it is appointed unto men to uh, to die once. And after this, the judgment. King Saul virtually collapsed when he heard the word of the Lord through Samuel. This is not what he was expecting. He expected a battle plan. He expected to have his fears alleviated. He expected that he'd receive a good word of encouragement. On the other hand, Saul believed what he heard. Like the criminal who commits his dirty deeds and then is finally caught, 
resignation to his fate quickly sinks in. Saul had eaten nothing and this added to his physical weakness. The ancient rabbis are in consensus that the reason that the king had not eaten wasn't from losing his appetite due to his high level of upset. Rather, it was that the always religious Saul was fasting that he might purify himself to be approved before Jehovah. Imagine. Saul was purifying himself in his own way to approach the God of Israel who's already permanently rejected him. And he was intending to approach the Lord by means of a pagan seance that violated God's strict prohibition of consulting the spirits of the dead. I mean, I I could laugh at this a bit if it weren't so tragic and delusional and so prevalent, not only within our modern society, but even within the institutional church. We hear God's word, we know God's word, and then we reject the Lord's commandments, and instead we behave religiously when it seems convenient. We refuse to follow the way, clearly laid out in the scriptures, and then we expect God to accept a man-made way that's more to our liking. Then we're surprised. We're devastated. Sometimes we're even angry with God when He doesn't answer our requests or honor our observances. Notice that when Moses and Abraham and other true and faithful men of God, not the merely religious, heard that their time was near, the phrase used to describe what was coming was that they were about to go be with their fathers. See, this was a mostly pleasant thought. They would cross over peacefully and rest in comfort with generations of their families near to them. Saul was offered no such bed of roses. Tomorrow was essentially his violent execution. God's judgment carried out at the hands of wicked men in the most painful way. And then afterwards, the darkness and loneliness of the grave. And part of that pain would be that he would live just long enough to see his sons killed and their blood spattered on his feet. The book of Chronicles sums this up and leaves no doubt as to what happened to Saul and why. First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. So Saul died for the transgression he committed against Adonai because of the word of Adonai that he did not keep and because he sought the counsel of a spirit instead of consulting Adonai. Therefore Adonai put him to death, and he turned the rulership over to David, the son of Jesse. Well, finally, two men who had come with Saul joined with the witch in convincing Saul to eat and regain some physical strength. So the woman prepared a a meal fit for a king, using a fattened 
calf, very valuable animal, as the main dish, and also preparing unleavened bread because this all had to happen very quickly. The witch was essentially preparing the last meal of a condemned man. Now before we move on to chapter 29, I want to tie up a couple of loose ends. All sorts of theological theories and doctrines have arisen from this story of Saul and the witch of Endor. After the Roman church was established, this incident was discounted as not the real thing. Luther and Calvin both claim that this was a diabolical fake brought about by Satan. The early Gentile church fathers argued vehemently about this troubling story. Origen, for instance, believed it, and he took it literally. But Eustathius, like Calvin would later, said this was just a big demonic forgery. Now there is no reason to think that this incident was actually anything but of the Lord. It was quite real. In fact, we have other scripture that speaks directly to the issue that has caused many church leaders to simply label the story itself as false or to give the devil the credit for Samuel's appearance and for his pronouncements. Would God speak his word by means of an ungodly situation whereby even a witch is at the center of it? That's the question. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 14, page 653 in the Complete Jewish Bible. Ezekiel 14, page 653 in the Complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Then certain of Israel's leaders came to me, and while they were sitting with me, the word of Adonai came to me. Human being, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, thus setting in front of themselves the stumbling block that leads to sin. Should I let them consult me at all? Therefore speak to them. Tell them that Adonai Elohim says, Everyone in the house of Israel who takes idols into his heart, thus setting in front of himself the stumbling block that leads to sin, and then comes to the prophet, I myself Adonai will answer him in a manner suited to his many idols in order to grab hold of the house of Israel in their hearts since through their idols they've fallen away from me. Therefore say to the house of Israel that Adonai Elohim says, Repent! Turn yourselves away from your idols. Turn your faces away from all your disgusting practices. For everyone, whether from the house of Israel or a foreigner living in Israel, who separates himself from me, takes his idols into his heart, thus setting in front of himself the summing block that leads to sin, and then comes to the prophet, asking him to consult me for him, I'll answer him. 
I'll set my face against that person, make him a warning sign and an example, and cut him off from my people. Then you'll know that I'm Adonai. Here we have the Word of God exploring just such a situation as we saw at Endor. Idolatrous Hebrews are seeking God through pagan idols. And what does Jehovah say he'll do when a Hebrew does such a thing? He says, he'll speak to them as they're consulting these idols. That he'll tell them to repent from their ungodliness or otherwise the God, the Lord, a God will turn away from them and cut them off from the rest of his people. This is exactly what we saw in the story of Saul and the witch of Endor. Notice in Ezekiel, major principle here, notice in Ezekiel that in his response, God's not answering their prayers. He's not offering a blessing by means of pagan and man-made ways of worship and communications that are unauthorized by the Torah. Rather, he's giving them a warning of a curse for their actions. He's telling them, stop now, repent, otherwise they're going to become no more than a warning sign, a very unpleasant example for future generations. Food for thought. Let's move on to chapter 29. First Samuel chapter 29. It's a short chapter. We're going to get just a little ways into it. Page 331 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. <clears throat> the Philistines gathered all of their army together at Aphek. And while Israel's army pitched camp by the spring of Yezreel, the leaders of the Philistines were passing by with their hundreds and thousands. David and his men were bringing up the rear with Ahish. The chiefs of the Philistines asked, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish answered the chiefs of the Philistines, This is David, who was a servant of Saul, king of Israel. He's been with me now for well over a year. I haven't found anything wrong with him between the time he deserted to me and now. But the chiefs of the Philistines became angry and they said to him, Have the man and go back to the, have the man return, go back to the place you set aside for him. Don't let him go into battle with us. Because in the battlefield, he might become our enemy. What better way could there be for him to get reconciled with his Lord than by cutting off the heads of our men? This is David. They used to dance and sing about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. So Achish summoned David and he said to him, As Adonai lives, you've been upright. I myself would be more than pleased to have you go on campaign with me, because I haven't found anything wrong with you between the day you arrived and now. But the chiefs don't trust you. Therefore now, go on back. Go in peace, so as not to do what appears bad to the chiefs of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant during the time I've been with you that disqualifies me from going and fighting against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David, I know that you are as good from my point of view as an angel of God. 
Nevertheless, the chiefs of the Philistines have said, He's not to go up with us to the battlefield. So, get up early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and as soon as you are up and it gets lit light, leave. David got up early in the morning, he and his men, to leave and go back into the land of the Philistines, while the Philistines continued on up to Jezreel. Now, it may not seem so, but the rather innocuous opening verse of 1 Samuel 29 has caused a fair amount of consternation with Bible scholars. I wonder if you can spot the reason why. It's because we're told that the Philistines gathered their army at Aphek. And that the Israelites gathered their army at a spring in Jezreel. In the previous chapter, 28, we're told that the Philistines gathered their army at Shunem. And Saul massed his troops at Mount Gilboa. What gives? Is one set of these locations right and the other wrong? Or as many scholars say... Is chapter 29 placed chronologically out of order? And it should have come before chapter 28. Let's deal with this. As it's a sterling example of what happens when in studying the Bible, history and common sense are ignored. And the intellectual elite prefer to amend the holy texts with their thoughts and wisdom. We're dealing with a rather long, long for the Bible anyway, and and complex story that has elements of it occurring simultaneously at different locations. Whether such a story is being told around a campfire, or written in a book, or shown in a film, there is no other practical way to communicate the overall situation without communicating it in vignettes. What we're dealing with in the Bible also happens in modern movies and in TV programs as a routine. We just never give it any thought. Movies cut back and forth between elements of the storyline that are happening at the same moment, but they affect each other in the story's final outcome. Or at other times, the movie will flash forward or it'll flash back to try and include necessary information. The TV series Seinfeld took this principle to a whole new level. It constantly took a simple story involving a small number of characters and showed what they were each doing apart from the others, but chronologically, All of these things were happening at approximately the same time. And in the end, all of it came together, and we could see how each of these separate actions affected the others and brought us to whatever the outcome of the story was. That, more or less, is what we're finding here in the story of David, Saul, Achish, and the witch of Endor, the Philistines in general too, and it all leads us to how it was that Saul died and how it paved the way for David to assume the throne.
We also need to remember that because centuries ago, some scholars decided to divide some of the larger books of the Bible into two, such as they did with Samuel and Kings, and then took the further step of dividing all the books into chapters and then further down into verses, we get this false sense sometimes of beginnings and endings. When as often as not, one chapter just runs directly into the next without interruption. 1 Samuel chapter 29 is being taught largely in flashback style. Thus in chapter 28... Take a look in your Bibles, chapter 28, verse 4. It begins, the Philistines assembled. Then they went and pitched camp at Shunem. But chapter 29 now tells us where the Philistines assembled. It it was at a place called Aphek. In other words... While our minds tend to read 28.4 as saying that the Philistines assembled at Shunem, the words don't say that at all. The words merely say that first they assembled, and then second, after assembling, they went to the camp at Shunem. Chapter 29 explains that the assembly took place at a place called Aphek. And when we look at a map, the common sense of it all becomes apparent. Here's Ophic here. Right? Look where the area of the Philistines is. There's Ophic. Then up here is Shunem. Shunem was considerably north of Philistine territory. It was deep in the heart of Israel. Ophic, on the other hand, was on the northern edge of Philistine-controlled territory, on the main road on up to the Jezreel Valley from the coast. So the five armies of the five kings of Philistia journeyed up and met up at Ophic at a secure location in territory that they controlled and then once they were all gathered they marched together as one large army on up to Shunim. And there they set up their battle camp on the edge of the Jezreel Valley. As for the Israelites, they first gathered their forces at a meeting point. There was some spring up here in the Jezreel. And it would have been the only suitable spring in the area that was able to accommodate a large number of troops. It was the one formed by the Harod, about five miles southeast of the city of Jezreel. This was the same spring where Gideon selected his 300 best warriors to attack the Midianites by choosing those who drank from this spring in a very warrior-like and alert manner and leaving the other ones behind. After the various clan and tribal forces of Israel met up at this same spring, found out where the Philistines set up their war camp, which was at Shunem, then they went and set up at Gilboa. All right. We will continue uh, next week with this story.